welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co founder of iRelaunch, and your host. Today, we welcome Katha Gentis. Katha is a successful independent comedy writer, producer, director who started filmmaking in between driving carpools in suburban New Jersey as a mother of two. Her stories are character driven, heightened reality comedies. Katha has an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA. She has many credits to her name, including Bad Parents, which is currently running on HBO, Apple TV, and other platforms. And her most recent film, Pooling to Paradise, is what we will talk about in part today, among many other topics. Katha put her dream career, the one that she has now, aside for 10 years when her children were younger. So very excited to be speaking with Katha today about everything to do with writing, directing, producing, and having to do that after taking a career break. Katha, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Hello, Carol. It is amazing to be here with you today. <laughs> Thank you yes. for, uh, you know, giving me this platform. Oh, well, uh, you're very modest. And I want to make sure that that we don't downplay any of your accomplishments in the conversation. But um, Keith and I were just reminiscing that we've actually we actually have known each other for, for many years now. And through all, all the phases, I, I've watched Katha build her career back up again. And, and it's been really fascinating and inspiring. So Katha, can you uh, start for our audience to give give everyone some background? Walk us through your early career path up until you took your career break? Yeah. So I actually went to Syracuse undergrad and uh, was in Newhouse School of Communication and, you know, always considered myself a storyteller. And so when I came out of college, especially back then, you know, as you know, of the go-go 80s, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. Um, I got Mm -hmm. a job and I felt like, oh, a great job would be to sell writers because I have an extroverted personality, which perhaps we mentioned, and I like sales because that's storytelling. So I started in New York working in a literary agency and very quickly started selling film rights and representing journalists and really understood the salesmanship of, of, of screenwriting. Uh, then we moved to Los Angeles. I'd met my husband in college and he went to business school and I worked as an agent out there. And then I worked in development. And then I went to UCLA because I felt, you know, in my late 20s, it was time to really engage in screenwriting. And, um, you know, I got an MFA at UCLA, which at the time was an incredibly inexpensive experience and a great environment and wrote a whole bunch of scripts, got a literary agent, had a little bit of success selling a project to ABC. And then I said, huh, perhaps it's time to have children, <laughs> Right. You know, which I think for many of us, there is a naivete to that from how we were raised that I don't, you know, in my education, it wasn't like, oh, you know, you really were educated how motherhood was going to change your life. And I had a child and then I jokingly or not jokingly said, like, my creativity flowed out of me with the amniotic fluid. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God. And then the I got offered jobs back because I had a career. And I'm like, no, I I really was like, I felt like if I returned, especially in Los Angeles, to the intensity of the movie business, which is so 24-7, 
you know, it really would impact my marriage and my family. And I didn't have the means to like, oh, I'll just screenwrite in between breastfeeding and sleepless nights. So that's when I paused my film career and I kind of mm-hmm. no regrets did it. And as I told you, I did work in sales. I was able to find a job that was sort of more of a part-time flexible outside sales job. So I was able to continue to work at some level, but it was not where I put that career, which was kind of my, you know, what I had always, I had planned for on hold. Right. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that you started on the business side, you, you know, as an agent and learned everything about that that piece of it before you then came around and and really um, developed your creative roots, which you always knew that you had. Okay, so you're on career break. You're doing the, the sales role on the side. You're completely out of the, your, your, yeah, your main field, your dream field. Yeah. And can you talk about, was there some moment when you woke up one day and thought, okay, this is the moment and I'm going back to this? Or was did that sort of build up over time? Oh, I would call it what I described as my mommy midlife crisis. I would, Mm -hmm. it was more of, and I had already moved back east. It was more of an earthquake where I was just, (laughs) had literally what I, you know, called this sort of, um, I mean, because I did stop working in sales because it was really hard to manage that too, because I kind of hit the, the plateau of where that part-time work really was satisfying and my kids in elementary school, it was, I mean, it was just too much, which a lot of the women that you run into came to grips with of how do I do all of this? And can I, and can I do it all well at the same time? And I was fortunate and I do feel like choices, we are very fortunate to have that, but it does create an existential crisis because after work, you're just like, this is what I got to do. But if it's sort of a choice, I think, like I said, it creates a little bit of a crisis. And I did kind of spiral to a very bad place of who I am. How did I become this? Feminism let me down. I'm nothing but a womb. I went through all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing again. Um, and which in the short, trying to make it short, I started writing again. Um I was on vacation. I had met a woman who was a donor inseminated single mom. And I thought, oh, that would make a really interesting story because she knew everything about the donor. And I was like, huh, you know, there's a really interesting story there. I started writing again. Uh, So I had finished a script and it had been 10 years since I was in the movie business. And in Hollywood, I consider a 10 year break equivalent to dog years. So it was more like 70 years where all my contacts and the people who were my buddies that I palled around with were now like running studios and had higher level jobs. But I was just, you know, kind of somebody from the past. Right. That, that's, you know, what you're describing uh, could be applicable to pretty much any industry where you've taken a long career break. You're talking about you know, the whole uh, film industry, which I'm not in it myself, but my perception is it, is that it is totally unforgiving. Anyway, that was especially intimidating, but just the way you describe it now, I feel like, oh yeah, well, that that's how, how a lot of people feel when they read the alumni notes of their school and find that people are in very senior roles while, you know, they've been on career break for the last 10 years. Yeah, and it's really hard. And again, this is universal is that there was a time, you know, in your 
pre, you know, when you were working that you were peers with all these people, they were at your level. And then that's where I was like, wow, well, I was off driving carpools, which has value. And I knew I needed to do it. I was like, look at them climbing the ladder. And now all of a sudden, they're really not your friends. They're the, the, there's this inequity. And that's what I think mm-hmm. is challenging. What we all face is somebody that, hey, you know, I'm not asking you for a favor. We're friends. And now all of a sudden you feel like, you know, it, the, the balance of power has completely shifted. And, you know, it's a real a real thing we all have to navigate. So can you walk us through what happened after that? Did you keep writing and writing and then there was like something that turned into more than that? And how long did it take? What was the progression? Oh, well, I had finished the script and at the time, which became, you know, I was, you know, like I said, I had a background in sales. I was very active in youth sports and, you know, I just, I said to, I was working with a writing consultant you know, and I just said, what, what do I do? Do I just put this script in the drawer? I mean, she said, no, this script is too good. And it was the time that independent films were really starting um, to take off. And Napoleon Dynamite was, you know, all the news. And I'm like, wait, what year, what year was this roughly? Uh, oof, let's see, like, tw- what, I don't even know what year it is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say 1200. It was like around 15 years ago. So you do the math. You're, you're a numbers person. Yeah, so, well, so it was around 2005, 2006. Yes. Like around okay. that time. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what year it is now. I don't know what day it is, but anyway, so in that time and yeah, it was around 2007. I, um, and I said to my writing teacher, and this is kind of, I said, you know what? I actually think I could pull this off. Just tell me it's not in vain that the script is worth it. So Mm. that's when I decided to become a producer. And I think it's like what, it's that entrepreneurial spirit that disenfranchised people adopt. It's like, well, if I can't go in through the front door, I'm going to go in through the background. I'm going to start a business, you know, which, you know, many of your relaunchers, including yourself, have done. It's like, okay. I'll just do it. I'll do it. If I can't find somebody, they'll hire me. I'll hire me. So I, um, and I went to a, how to make a movie seminar. Cause I really only knew a small part of how to make a film. And I embarked on independent filmmaking and it was kind of the scariest and most thrilling thing I'd ever done because mm-hmm. I my sales background and my creative stuff and my, and I, and raise and I raised the money to make a film. And I kind of thought it was be a lot less than it ultimately ended up being. And I had a mutual friend who knew Vanessa Williams and Vanessa Williams and I had gone to Syracuse. And that's the whole thing, as you know, from all these careers, it's finding people, you know, and she's like, oh, I love this script. Let's make it. Wow. And yeah, but it wasn't that I went to her agent and he goes, yeah, well, you got Vanessa, not Jennifer Aniston. Good luck with it. You know, and the script got a great review. Everybody's like, yeah, this ICM was like, this is an amazing script, but you don't have the right actress. And so so I took the coverage, which is the reader's report, you know, the recommendation. I put it in a business plan and I said, I'm going to make a movie. Wow. So can you talk us through like what movie did that turn into? How long did it ultimately take to make? Oh, it went really fast. And it, like I said, it was scary. We were under, and again, it's like any 
business thing you or, or renovation in your home. And that's, oh, by the way, that's how I demystified it. One, I'd ran a town soccer tournament and I'm like, okay, if I can run a soccer tournament, I can make a movie. And then I said, okay, it's like a home renovation. You know, you have all these people who do these jobs. It always goes over budget and you, you know, so I tried to demystify it. Uh-huh. So, all right, well, to backtrack, the film is called And Then Came Love. It took a year to make it and or a year. Well, we made it and then it, the whole it was released in a year. It happened at lightning speed. I got to deal with Warner Brothers. Wow. I blind casting before anybody else did. I told a story about a donor and same day mom before anybody else did and had kind of incredible beginner's luck. And as I was starting to say, I wanted to keep the budget low. I wanted to make it something that I could share with my world. So a lot of my friends in suburbia were the people who invested in it. And they only knew me kind of as a soccer mom. They nobody hmm. knew I had anything, you know, a career before, you know. And again, these are not super wealthy people, but they were willing to take a shot on me, which was shocking. And um, I made the money in the end, too, which was even more shocking. <laughs> wow. That is that's incredible. I, I mean, all the way around the speed, the contract with Warner Brothers, the groundbreaking nature of what you were doing, and then to have it be a business success on top of that for you and your investors is 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 pretty astounding. Yeah, I, I did write them a letter because I got a minimum guarantee in advance from from Warner Brothers and my sales agents. Like, this is probably the only money you're going to see. So. I'm the person that wrote them, I'm sorry, you're going to probably end up having to take a loss on the rest of your money. And then every year we kept getting money and they're like, Katha, that is like the best <laughs> commitment. <laughs> that you wow. So what I did was, because I wanted to find ways to keep the budget low. And that's what I feel as a salesperson, as you know, you're not asking people for something, you're finding an opportunity, you're finding a way is how can I help you and you help me? So I had friends that had skills that I thought, you know, like I needed somebody to find locations and lock locations. I had friends who'd done event planning and things like that. So, I mean, it was like, okay, that's not that hard. So I made a friend, a location scout, another mm. person, became my wardrobe supervisor because they had a background similar. And I was able to then have women, and you know, and I had friends who had been actors that I gave background roles to or did, we needed somebody to do background casting. And I'm like, okay, we know thousands of people in our town and they all showed up to be on set. So I was able to keep the budget down and create opportunities and kind of create belonging community as well as giving women this feeling that of empowerment through you know especially that first one but I've always sort of done that can you just talk a little bit more about some of these behind the scenes roles that you had women in on your sets over time because I I remember when you were telling me about this the first time I thought it, it was it was just so unusual to, and and you were talking about the benefit to them of sort of being in those like ground level roles. Well, because well, first of all, that's what I do think mothers and relaunchers or parents, because I don't even, we, as you know, your network has grown beyond just mothers. As somebody who's a parent, 
our multitasking skills are one of our, you know, our gifts. You cannot get a kid to school if you're not good at multitasking. And that's really what, you know, a lot of work requires is to be able to be doing 10 things at one time. And so, yeah, like I said, I had, you know, people who were in the food business that could provide the craft services or the food on sets. You know, there's so many jobs within film, as I learned them, that I could give these women that I knew in particular, and men as well, um, opportunities to pivot. And that's really what it was. It was like, okay, you have these skills, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to pivot it into a job that you'll get on a movie. And that's what I said to my investors. I go, look, I can't guarantee that I will make you money, but I will guarantee one that I will try my hardest and that I will give you a really positive experience. Um, and, and that's, um, you know, and again, I also did this with young people. Um, my quote unquote interns, you know, who were either college aged or right out of college, it was the same thing. I truly did not make them people who got me coffee or picked up dry cleaning. I mentored them. I brought them to meetings so I could really help them launch their careers and, you know, help make introductions to people I knew. And, you know, I jokingly say, yeah, someday, hopefully you'll hire me because more people wanted them than me. So, <laughs> And, and I, I, I'm thinking about, I'm remembering you saying something about when people have these roles, like like you're giving them, whether they're grips or, or or catering or anything, that it's really important for them to be there because they're then they're sort of there in the infrastructure and meeting all these other people, and that's how they move from one project to another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically it. It you know, it's showing up, and um, it's also like you know, I think the magic word is like this empowerment. And I think um, women, as we've seen, you know, I've seen on TED Talks and whatever, like this need for permission and the fear that they can't do something they don't haven't already done. And that's where I just try to dispel that fear that, I mean, not everybody can succeed and not everybody has that ability, but I could see in them from other things they did, let's say it's being very active in their home and school association, that if they're running those kinds of organizations that certainly they have the ability to do something on, on, you know, one of my projects. And the good thing about film for us is that it's a project, you know, it's not because I think a lot of times what we grapple with is the right. full time job. This was something like, okay, first of all, production is the small shortest amount of time. We're talking like three weeks and a month in mine, like 21 days of shooting. So you're not, you're really just pausing your life for a very short period of time, but then you get to have something to talk about, which is, I think what's important about going on any interview is just having something interesting to talk about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's almost like it's transactional yeah. in a sense. And, and so I, I, I think this is that that's really important. And the opportunity to do that on a project basis, how you're pointing out is, could be a, a, like a key stepping stone for people who are on the way to relaunching. And you're exactly right. They have something to talk about. It, it was a real uh, endeavor that they were involved in. And, and 
they have all these anecdotes from it and they have all these, this experience from it now. Yeah. And that's why I feel like, I mean, to interviewing with stuff, I mean, it's about passion. I think people that hire people want to just see you be excited about something. And that's why I even feel with kids coming out of college, like don't force them into majors they don't want. English or philosophy, if you're in a job, even I'm sure, and again, I don't know for sure, you know, in, in finance and you come in there and you're excited and they hear this and that's what people want to see is people with passion. Nobody wants to hire an adult. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, Keith, I, I know this is like hard for you to do, but you have been very prolific over the last 10 years and you've made films and you've won awards. And I want to know if you can brag about yourself for a few minutes um, or pretend you're talking about someone else, but you're talking about yourself um, and just give us a sense of a few of the um, projects that you've worked on and, and where they've gone and, and over oh, what period of time. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm happy to. I mean, like you said, <laughs> I'm happy to brag. I mean, just look at my Facebook. No, just kidding. But um, no, that was a joke. And actually, I'm doing that with in the Covey Club on how to brag about yourself today. Oh, great. Oh, I, I just I was just on the Covey Club. Uh, Leslie Seymour is a wonderful supporter of uh, many ventures and, and work that a uh, whole uh, network of women do. So that's awesome. But yeah, so, you know, I made that first, I mean, but the thing is, I have to say it's, I mean, I did that in Then Came Love. I got a deal with Warner Brothers. I mean, I literally did everything from beginning to end. So, I mean, I kind of touched everything. When you talk about the grips, that stuff, the under the hood stuff, I'm not so good at, but I'm like, what's the grip and what's the gaffer? But, um, but you know, anything from the funds to the K-1s. I've learned how to do all that. I've worked with the distributors and the agents. So, um, you know, I got to deal with Warner Brothers. And then I thought, oh, my phone's going to be ringing off the hook. It did not, <laughs> which was another crisis. Mm -hmm. But then I just was like, and as I was saying to somebody else, I mean, if you think anybody cares about you in this movie business, they don't, <laughs> no matter mm -hmm. who you are. <laughs> wow. But as artists, I feel like we keep persevering. So I made another film. I made a little gay romantic drama as my second film, which was all about finding, living, being your authentic self, which in many ways I was hiding out because I was struggling with who I was in suburbia and whether I fit in and I found a metaphor. Then I did a play called It's All About the Kids, which was about a very Beckett-esque existential look at suburban sports parenting through an under eight girls soccer team. And everybody was, and everybody who kind of it was about came, because usually I ran away and I'm like, oh my God, these people are going to see themselves in there. And it was, you know, oh, kind of an indictment. Right. And everybody was blown <laughs> away because I, I, the thing is, like I said, as I was saying, most of my stories deal with motherhood, parenthood, but from the point of view of somebody who's lived that many people in LA, their experiences are not the same as ours or they're written by men. And I really felt like I'm looking at this as somebody who's part of that world. And I was willing to look at my own behavior as well as my friends. Like why does this mean so much to us? What is this? Why are we living vicariously through our kids? Why is like it became a child-centric world as opposed to a parent-centric world, which was the old mm -hmm. parents were like, yeah, you go out and play. Uh, so that became Bad Parents. And that's 
now on HBO. And then when I did that, just similarly with And Then Came Love, I was ahead of the curve where everybody's like, wait, this is a dark, edgy look at parenting. I'm like, yeah. They're like, wait, we want nice and happy. Mm-hmm. So then now it's evergreen because I was talking with my distributor and it's, you know, it's on HBO. It'll be on Stars soon. This I made like five or six years ago and it's also on Apple TV. Um, I do other kinds of things as well, producing like a storytelling event. And then I did the other F word, which is where I met you because I looked at, oh, this is, you know, when we're living like our lives are our kids, what happens when they are gone? And that's how I connected with the grown and flown people. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. I'm the only one mm-hmm. that's struggling with this on reinvention. And I really yeah. thought that midlife was a true coming of age time. Like I feel like as women, it's the first time we'll give ourselves permission to put ourselves first when we're no longer taking care of our kids and our, we've taken care of our spouses long enough. <laughs> right. And, and, and hold on, just a shout out to Grown and Flown yeah. and Lisa Heffernan and Mary Del Harrington, who are the founders of what has now become an enormous community of, yes. uh, of parents of teens and uh, college students and beyond. And there's a book and it's like a whole media company. Yeah, no, it's amazing to me because they were sort of new when I started um the other F word. And that's where I met you was during the research stage because somebody had said, oh, there's, you know, I relaunched. Because I said, if you're somebody who's fully taken a break, how do you get back to work? And that's how I met you. And I have to say the other F word, which I did as a web series, because sadly, I ran into extreme ageism in the film business, and especially in television at that time, it's changed slowly. And they're like, nobody cares about your age group. You're not in the advertising, you know, world when, mm-hmm. you know, that they want. We want millennials. And I'm like, mm. we're the parents of the millennials. Anyways, <laughs> the other F word, it was literally, I have to say, I mean, and I had Judy Gold and I had Alicia Rayner and Steve Gutenberg, and they're all like, this is an amazing story. We want to be part of this. And again, it was done for next to nothing. The audience so connected with it. I had an amazing following. It's not quite dead yet, but I could never just make that jump because I'm not who they want to put in a writer's room. And that's two relaunchers. There's some things you can't change and you have to just find a way to do, to pivot differently. And that was, you know, and it was just the types of stories I'm telling. So anyway, then I said, well, I'll give you something for the millennials. And that's Pooling to Paradise, which mm. is my latest film, which I wrapped in December, right before the pandemic hit. And I wanted to tell us, it's, it's, it's also a coming of age story of people in their 30s, kind of inspired by a night that I went out with an Uber driver in Los Angeles till two in the morning. Uh, <laughs> so it's, I saw the trailer. I know now the reference. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's, yeah, it was that I wanted to, so, but I wanted to, even though it's about four people, disconnected people kind of coming to, it's a little bit like the ice storm was, these four people in their 30s coming to terms with adulthood, because we adulted a little bit earlier than this generation has, and, Mm -hmm. but I really wanted to look at, at the female experience, because I was like, well, these millennials are looking at a very different feminism that we did. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to 
put that under the microscope a little bit, but as well as look at men too, because I don't, like our story doesn't exclude them. And you have these women that came of age where they put themselves first. And I wanted to look at that, you know, so I have a 30 something mom and a 30 something single person, both, you know, feeling like, you know, just, just sort of coming to terms with as a woman, you know, being judged either way. And one of the questions, which isn't in the trailer, which was a meaningful one is when the mother says, you know, can you be a stay at home mom and still be a feminist? And again, it's not something I answer in the movie. It was just something I presented as, especially for this new generation, you know, we we're all dealing with what does it mean because I think we're grappling with that issue always. Yeah, you know, just seeing the trailer, one of the characters was dealing with an issue that is age old for relaunchers. Yeah. She is going to a mommy blogging conference, and the but she used to be an Emmy award winning writer, yeah. and then she's obviously on career break now. She's doing, she's doing, she's kind of downplaying um, and saying, well, you know, I'm going to this mommy blogging conference. And it was actually probably something significant, but the other people were kind of making judgments about it in the car. And then she was self-judging. And, you know, we've seen that in our generation. So we've seen that before. And I thought it was really interesting to have that come up again, fresh, you know, for this current generation. Yeah. And I think they're blindsided differently the way we were, um, because I think, They've put off, many have, you know, are getting married later and considering family later, but we can't, you know, my brother had his first child at 51 or 52 with a mid thirties wife. Like women don't have that luxury. Uh, I mean, and so that's where I thought, you know, I just want, and again, there's a lot more going on and the men have their own struggles they're dealing with in my movie. And again, it's comedic, but I just really did want to look at, you know, put that on the, you know, in this story of, and again, it's a very contained story for people in a car and it's this sort of peeling away of the onion. Uh, yeah. Of and it's, it's so relevant right now when, you know, we have this whole uh, COVID related uh, wave of women who are leaving and going home. And there's a lot of dialogue right now about, are, how many years women have lost in the job market and are they going back to these traditional roles uh, and and what does that mean? So so it, it's, it's very relevant. So Katha, we're, we're running out of time right now and I wanted to ask you two last questions before we wrap up. And one of them is in everything you've talked about so far, you just demonstrate so much resilience and how you pick yourself back up and you try it again and you try it from a different angle. And I want to know if you have recommendations for relaunchers who want to do what you're doing, uh, create and direct and produce series and shows and films, any industry and job specific advice for people who want to do what you have done? Yeah, I just think, and I, and I just, just quickly, I met Christina Starbuck, who at your conference, and I ended up casting her. Like she came up to me after the panel that I was on with Lisa, and she's like, I came to this and I'm looking to, you know, bring up, up, you know, get back more into the film business. And I'm like, and we became friends and I cast her. So just even. Wow. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, yeah, so yeah. here they, here, Katha was a speaker at our I Relaunch Return to Work conference, which we used to do in person. Uh, and it was in our New York conference is our biggest conference. We have hundreds of relaunchers there. And it is, it, you know, there are amazing connections that get made, some with the employers that are there specifically to recruit for their return to work programs, but also informal connections. I just love hearing this particular one and what it resulted in. Yeah. But to quickly answer that, the thing is, what I would say very specifically is, I mean, right now, um, you can just you can shoot and create content. Everything is very direct to consumer and you just you just do it. You you find you know, you find your allies, you find your audience, you make the content, you write, you share. Like I said, I'm doing a storytelling event. I'm creating a YouTube channel for it. You just do it. And, you know, your question is a whole lecture in itself, but I'm happy if anybody within your audience wants to reach out to me specifically, I would give them the long answer. (laughs) Okay. Well, and and you are on LinkedIn. So everyone now in the audience knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you you know, you're right. The technology we have today is yeah, you can actually just start filming. Uh, and it's a very different world in that way. Now, what happens after that? And, you know, there are all these platforms that are sort of yeah. instantly available to you. Of course, that means there are many more people doing it. And how do you yeah. raise above the crowd? And and, and that's part and that's of the another longer lecture. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, very interesting. So, Katha, I just want to end by asking you the question we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something we've already talked about today? Yeah, no, I would just, you know, which was kind of my thing out of out of the other F word is like no fear, no regrets. Everything is a no until you ask the question. So just, it's just like, again, through all this stuff, you need to be prepared. You only get one chance with most people. So do your homework, but don't like, don't ask permission. You just got to figure out what it is and you can throw a whole bunch of things against the wall and just go for it. Because that my whole thing is when you get super old, like, do you want to, you don't want to have regrets that you wished you had. So now's the time. And again, even if you are unprepared, you learn from your mistakes. And so you go in and somebody shames you and then you know what your homework is. (laughs) Keitha, that is such excellent advice for all relaunchers. So many of us are, we're 35 to 55 or older, we're men and women, uh, people who take career breaks for a whole range of reasons. And what you said applies, I think, in every case. So thank you so much. And Keitha, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, I will see you around, I can tell right now. <laughs> yes. Oh, also, let me ask you this. How can people find out more about your work? Well, I, you can go to my website, which is foxmeadowfilms.com, or like you mentioned, LinkedIn. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook as my name, Katha. It's one of the benefits of having a weird name. Can you and, spell that so people know yeah, how that's... C-A-Y-T-H-A. And... Um, I'm very accessible. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, Katha. Thank you. And thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. 
I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.